wealthy do-gooder. If you are a fan of unconventional perspectives and insights backed by rigorous science, then you are in for a treat on this episode of Thinking Vitamins with legendary thought leader Daniel Pink. Dan and I open this episode discussing his fascinating TV show, Crowd Control, why ambiverts are the best at sales, and better ways to talk to yourself. Then we dive into the misunderstood world of regret, the four different types of regret that we experience, and how you can harness your regrets for personal growth. Have you ever heard the term no regrets? That's one idea Dan debunks right off the bat. Regrets, when we know how to use them, lead us to a better life. I've been following Dan's work for a decade now and know this for certain. If you want actionable ideas for how to be more successful, Dan Pink is one of the best in the game. Tune in now for some fresh thinking with Dan Pink. Welcome to Thinking Vitamins, the podcast that helps you think about what you think about. I'm your host, Jill McCabe, and my mission is to help you use the power of thought to create purposeful prosperity. I came to understand the power of thinking after an accident nearly took my life. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me, until it was the best. The recovery period gave me time to explore how my thinking had limited me. I knew I had to change my thoughts to change my reality, but shifting my thinking was challenging. That's when I came up with the idea of thinking vitamins, intentionally repeating empowering ideas until they come to you automatically. Have you experienced a turning point driven call to purpose in your life? Are you curious about how you can think your way to more joy and prosperity? Join me as I interview inspiring thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and everyday people who share fresh ideas that empower us to create joyful and fulfilling lives. Tune in now and remember, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss new episodes. So I've been following your work for a decade. Your show, Crowd Control, was incredible. I mean, well, thanks. truly one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Thank you. You know that one you did on Signs? Mm-hmm. Telling people, please leave this spot free for someone like me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Think of me, keep yeah. it free. I had a whole organization, I would have them watch that, and then I would have them go through their entire organization's whole management teams and take down every sign and put up signs that followed, and we had competitions. Right, (laughs) rock and roll. I think that was an especially, that one I think was an especially good idea. And just for your listeners, just to give a little bit of background, I did a show a few years ago called Crowd Control, where we did some kind of social experiments out in the wild with hidden cameras. And one of the things that we did was we noticed that people were parking in parking places that were reserved for people with disabilities in spite of those iconic blue signs. And so we decided to redo the signs to put face on it. And so in Austin, Texas, we put up a bunch of signs in parking lots alongside those blue signs about, about disabled parking. We put up an additional sign that said, think of me, keep it free. And it had a photograph of somebody in Austin who was disabled. So somebody in a wheelchair, maybe somebody with a cane, somebody with a prosthetic limb. And the idea was to give people a reason for this rule and to actually humanize 
the rule, and it ended up working very well. And actually, several municipalities around the country have since adopted that. What's the purpose of a sign? The purpose of a sign, in, in many cases, is, is wayfinding. How do you get from here to there? It's also, what are the rules here? And a lot of times people will ignore the rules, but if you can make those signs emotionally intelligent, if you can explain both the why behind it and put a human face on it, then I think there's a very, you know, our hypothesis, my hypothesis for a long time has been, you're going to get better compliance with the rules. If you say, here's why we have the rule and here's what it looks like. Here's why you should empathize with the people who on whose behalf we are imposing this rule. So. I'm gl delighted to hear that you used it internally too. I, that's the first time I've heard it being used inside of an organization. But Many municipalities times. like it. It's a pain though, because you have to redo all your signs. That costs money and every municipality is strapped. But you don't have to redo all your signs. You can accompany them. All of well, the city managers and mayors and, and council members listening in. Well, my audience is mostly purpose-driven entrepreneurs, and so they can redo their signs. And I think that what I saw in the organizations I was working with, 50 to 300 people, that it uplifted the organization. Mm. It really changed the entire mood. People came up with creative things. And you mentioned two things. It's the why and you humanized it. But you did one other thing, which I think was brilliant, which is you asked for the behavior you wanted, you know, not no parking. And so there is some evidence to show that I can't ask you not to think of a pink elephant. So you said, please leave this spot free for someone like me. And I think that was another critical part of what we brought to hmm. it was that the signs also to pass the test and be submitted in the contest had to actually ask for the behavior and not say, no, you can't, right? Very interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. We didn't, we didn't pursue that. I'll see you and raise you on your idea because I think another thing that, that was valuable for the kinds of sign reinvention that you're describing internally is that you pushed the responsibility and the creativity on the people themselves. Uh, it wasn't like a, a, a small team of geniuses came in and read it all, read it all the signs. It was participatory. It was diverse. You sought out the, the best ideas. And one of the things that we know very strongly is that when people have a say in setting the rules, when people have a say in establishing their own goals, they're going to believe the rules and achieve the goals more readily than if they're imposed on them. So don't discount the participatory side of what you did, not what we did, but what you did. Well, thank you. That's exciting. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, okay. So crowd control, listeners, an incredible TV show. If you're interested in behavior, if you're interested in how you can make small changes to your environment, to your behaviors, this is one of the most incredible, entertaining, fun, funny TV series that you can watch to sort of get up to speed on the least you need to know, I think, about behavioral science. What was your motivation for that show? I would imagine it was a lot of work. <laughs> it was a huge amount. Of, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a huge amount of work. It was actually conceived by a production company in the UK that, and then they, they ended up bringing me in uh, along the way, which I'm internally grateful for. I guess the, the motive was multiple. One one of them was to inspire people to change stuff, to stop jaywalking, to get people to return carts when they go to the grocery store. Small things that actually make communities large and small better. Another was in a very you know lighthearted way to try to teach people some principles of behavioral science. And then the third one was, maybe the, the ultimate thing was to put on a good show, to entertain people, to get people to sit on their couch for 22 minutes 
on a Monday night and watch this rather than Monday night football or people screaming at each other on cable news networks or 1100 reruns of Seinfeld and other kinds of sitcoms. So Okay, well maybe that because I know you're a big fan of sports. So maybe they could still watch the football. I <laughs> know this is much better than Monday Night Football. Okay. But the network executives decided to put our show directly against Monday Night Football. So for linear television, it, it was not an ideal time slot. No. Uh, okay. So, but that's not all that I have learned from you. I've learned some other things that I want to talk about before we jump into your current book. Okay. Let's go back to your work on to sell as human. That was really helpful for me because I'm good at sales. I teach sales and yet I'm a self-described introvert and mm. meaning I can be for a month by myself and not get lonely. So I think, you know, I'm on that spectrum and seeing your work on that, I was allowed to be both of those things was pretty cool. And you've discovered that I'm not so special, right? A lot of us are on that spectrum. Well, I mean, one of the insights in that book, which comes from some research done at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and there was other evidence of this, but this is a brilliantly done piece of research. What it showed is that our belief is that the people who are most effective in sales are extroverts, strong extroverts. And what we know is that extroverts in general are more likely to get hired in sales jobs, more likely to get promoted in sales jobs. But when you look at actually the sales performance, that extrovert advantage goes away. What this research showed is that the people who are best at sales are not strong extroverts. That's a complete unadulterated myth. Strong extroverts are not very good and they are certainly not the best, but strong introverts aren't very good either. The people who are the best are ambiverts, people who are somewhat introverted and somewhat extroverted. And the truth of the matter is, is that when you look actually at how real scientists measure personality, that is personality psychologists measure it. They recognize that introversion and extroversion is on a spectrum. It's not binary. It's not, you're not an I or an E. All of us exist somewhere on the spectrum. And most of us are ambiverts. Most of us are a little introverted, a little extroverted. And ambiverts make the best salespeople because like you, they're ambidextrous. I mean, you're probably like me, a somewhat introverted ambivert, but you're probably near the center of that spectrum. You might tilt a little toward the introvert side, but you're probably near the center where there are a lot of people. And you know what, what ambiverts do is they know when to speak up and they know when to shut up. They know when to push, they know when to hold back. They're ambidextrous. And those people make the best sales folks. I really appreciate you sharing that, especially my audience are purpose-driven entrepreneurs. Many come to it late in life and they worry that they're not suited to sales or yeah. how can I go out and do this when that's not what I do. I'm not that person who can handle rejection. So I do recommend checking out Dan's book on that if that is something that you've been afraid of in whatever you're doing. But Dan's book does go beyond that to talk about how we're selling ideas all the time and that's a critical yeah. part of life. So I think I just want to sort of give a shout out for that book, particularly well, for you. my audience and say that's important. So then... Then, so thinking vitamins, let me just let, explain a little bit about thinking vitamins. I know that you're sort of like a hyper rational person. I'm actually, <laughs> I come from a, a world of academics and my parents were academics and hypercritical. I couldn't sit down at dinner. Like I'd sit down at dinner, you know, it's like nine. I remember, you know, sort of saying, you know, Susie said there was going to be a fair, who? What fair? What was the credibility of that statement? It was really 
hammered. And that created over time, this constant look for what was wrong with the message mm. led to me being a pessimist. So I joke, I'm a pessimist turned optimist, which is true. And I used clinical understanding of what optimism is in its most critical sense. And what I call thinking vitamins. I realized if heads law wire together, fire together, I simply had a whole lot of wiring of what's wrong and I hmm. needed to rewire. One of the things that helped, and I've also shared with many clients, is one of your pink casts you share. There's all this Pollyanna talk, right? I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. But how is Jill McCabe going to speak to somebody she really admires, Dan Pink? And I said, how is, right? And I got that from you. It's become embedded behavior. And it's one of my thinking vitamins to, to not just say, I'm going to have a great interview. Yeah. I'm going to ask good questions. It was more like, how will I properly prepare? How will I make this worth your time? How, how will I? And I got that from you. Thanks a lot. That was done originally at University of Illinois by Dolores Albaracin, who's now at uh, among others, who's now also at Warden, where it's a font of great research and decision-making and behavioral science and so forth. I think it might be helpful to explain what, what's the mechanism going on there. So here's the mechanism going on there. If I, there's a whole line of research, as you know, on, on what's called self-talk. We talk to ourselves silently. Everybody does it. It's not weird. It can be very healthy. A lot of times when we're preparing for an important encounter, our self-talk will be positive and affirmative. You can do this, or I can do this. You, know, you can do this. You got this. And what the research shows is that that's better than doing nothing. There's no question about it. Like you, you get a little bit of a, of an uplift and that little bit of an uplift arguably boosts your performance, but it's not the best thing you can do. And the best thing you can do is what you describe, which is called interrogative self-talk, which is instead of affirming yourself, can you do this? You ask yourself, can you do this? And if so, how can you do this? And if so, how both of those are important and the self-help gurus don't like this because you're introducing doubt, you're introducing uncertainty, you're introducing even a few sprinkles of negativity. But the evidence tells us that when you do that, because questions by their nature are interactive, you answer the question. Can you do this? Yeah, I can do this because I have a lot to say. Yeah, I can do this because I have a set of great questions. Yeah, I can do this because um, I want to serve my listeners. And what, what are you doing there? You're preparing, you're rehearsing. And even though I can do this, feels muscular. And it is in a way, that's the thing. It's not terrible. There's a, the quiet muscularity of interrogative self-talk. Can you do it? And if so, how is, is more important. And you also see analogous research leading to the exact same conclusion in sports psychology, where you have essentially amateur athletes saying, you can do this, you got this. And professional athletes saying, can you do this? And if so, how? Yeah, I can do this because I'm a professional baseball player. And I know that, that this particular pitcher always throws a breaking ball on his first pitch and I'm going to be ready for that. And so you're rehearsing, you're preparing, you're getting ready. So self-talk that is interrogative actually has a quiet power that is often, that often goes unrecognized. Yeah. I gained so much from it. The whole concept of the thinking vitamins podcast is to illuminate ideas, perspective shifts, things we thought worked one way and worked another that can get us ruminating on the right things, if you will, wondering, yeah. well, what if I did ask myself how or why is this important? I feel like talking about how can I do this sort of does present the opportunity to start talking about your current book, which I really thought was interesting. Dan's latest book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward, which I have the audio book, which you read beautifully, by the way. I really hey, enjoyed that. And I really appreciate it when people read their own work. 
so good. At the opening, you were talking about the harnessing regret for, the, for good. And at the opening of your book, you contrast popular culture's fascination with the idea of no regrets and the idea that regret is not a bad thing, but actually an essential component to the human experience. And yeah. I think it's a tall order to ask people to embrace the power of regret. So why did why do you feel so drawn to this as a topic? Well, because I think we've gotten it wrong. And you're, I mean, Jill, your analysis of the market is spot on. You're, you know, the best thing you can do if you want to be commercially successful, unfortunately, is to, is to tell people what they want to hear in ways that make them feel clever, you know, so just confirm their existing beliefs. And what I was trying to do here was really go in and challenge people's existing beliefs about regret. And our existing beliefs about regret are that it's bad for us, that there's no good in it that you should always be positive, avoid negativity, always look forward, never look back. And the evidence tells us something very different. The evidence tells us that regret makes us human. Everybody has regrets. It's one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It is ubiquitous in the human experience. It's trying to extinguish regret from the human experience is impossible. It is in our cognitive machinery. Human beings are built to experience regret. The question is, what do we do with it? And the initial question is, why? Why would our cognitive machinery be programmed for something that makes us feel bad? And the reason is, and we have 60 years of social science on this, we have neuroscience on this, we have cognitive science on this, we have developmental psychology on this. If we treat it right, it helps us learn. It helps us grow more specifically. It can help us become better negotiators. It can help us avoid cognitive biases. It can help us become better strategists. It can help us become faster and better problem solvers if we treat it right. And wow. the problem is we haven't been treating it right. Some of us ignore our regrets. We say no regrets, never look backward, always positive. That is not a recipe for a life well lived. However, others of us wallow in our regrets, ruminate on our regrets, stew in our regrets. That's not a recipe for good living either. What we want to do is think about our regrets, front our regrets, reckon with our regrets, extract lessons from our regrets, and use those lessons for forward progress. And when we do that, this is powerfully transformative. I have already used the power of regret to make many changes in my daily behavior. One of the things hmm. with me is I try everything. I think a pet peeve that I have is this concept of it happened for a reason. I help people make intentional things happen in their life. And that's just a personal pet peeve, not because I think that's untrue, but because I think people don't approach that in a powerful way. And I think that's suggestive of no regrets. It's like, well, it all happened for a reason. And to yeah. me, I'm making this link. So you say avoiding regret is actually holding us back. Actively. Absolutely. Yes, because we're leaving capacity on the table. So think about it this way. Think about all the decisions that you made or anybody listening to this made today or yesterday. Most of them you don't remember. Think about any decision or indecision you made last week. Most of them you don't remember. With regret, we're talking about decisions and indecisions or actions and inactions that people made a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. Not only do they remember it, but it makes them feel bad. Okay, That's a very strong signal. That's telling you something. And you don't want to put your fingers in your ears and ignore that incredibly strong signal. What we know from what we know is that 
that strong signal is giving people clarity on what they value and instruction on how to do better in the future. Regret clarifies what we value and instructs us on how to do better. And so instead of ignoring that, we should stare, we should stare it in the eye and say, regret is part of the human condition. What is this regret telling me? What lesson can I, can I pull from this? And how can I take that lesson and use it as an engine for going forward? And when we do that, once again, the benefits are vast. So I think you've got about 18,000 survey responses here on the topic of regret. It might be higher now than last I heard, but you discovered that regrets fell into four main categories. Yes. Yeah, I did. So what I did to get this research, and I'm going to come back to something earlier that you said, because I think it's informative here. Okay. So yeah, you were talking about being at the dinner table as a nine-year-old and being sort of hounded by these hyper-rational parents about whether you knew, you know, how do you know this? And, and, and I have to say the hounding part, I'm not a fan of, but the overall enterprise I am. And I think it's very important that when people are telling us stuff, when they're making claims about how the world works, I think it's very important to approach it with, a, with, with skepticism, but with generous skepticism, generous skepticism. I think the generous skepticism is embodied by asking people, okay, that's interesting. How do you know? How do you know? So I'm making these claims about, about regret. How do I know? Right. So I want to tell you how I know. So on some of the things I was talking about earlier, as I mentioned, there's a rich body of science on this emotion. But some of these other claims I made, I got to by collecting a lot of regrets from around the world. I established something called the World Regret Survey. We have now collected over 22,000 regrets from 109 countries. It's a massive trove of individual regrets. And exactly as you found, exactly as you say, we found that around the world, regrets seem to group in most regrets seem to group into the same four categories. There are foundation regrets. Which, are, which is, if only I'd done the work. These are regrets about small decisions that people make early in life that accumulate to terrible consequences later in life. I didn't save enough money. I didn't work hard enough in school. I didn't take care of my health. I didn't eat right. I didn't exercise. Second category is boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. These are people who had a juncture in their life when they, could, they, when they had a choice. They could play it safe or they could take a shot. And when they didn't take the shot, when we don't take the shot, most people, most of the time regret it. Not all the time, but most of the time. So these are people who didn't travel, didn't go on an adventure, didn't ask somebody out on a date, didn't speak up for something that mattered to them, didn't leave a lackluster job to start a business. Third category, moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. These are regrets about moral misbehavior. We had a lot of bullying regrets about having been a bully. We had... To me, a surprising number of regrets about marital infidelity and other kinds of moral indiscretions. And then finally, number four is connection regrets, which are if only I'd reached out, which are about the relationships in our life, not only the romantic relationships in our life. In fact, most of these connection regrets were not about romantic relationships where a relationship drifts apart. You want to reach out. You feel awkward about it. You think the other side's not going to care. So you don't. The drift widens and then you regret it. So those are the four foundation regrets boldness regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets. So we're going to dive into some of the things you can you can do with regret. I'm going to mention here my audience just being mostly purpose-driven entrepreneurs who start late in life, left mm. that sort of job, or maybe are thinking about it. Definitely worth looking at Dan's work on these boldness <laughs> regrets, which are that wish that you would have taken the chance with does increase with age, which explains why I do have mostly an older audience of you know accomplished people who are like, no, I've got to do this thing for the world. And they finally take that leap. And I think that 
I'm working very much with people who are ready, you know, to take that boldness leap. The part that I mentioned that I've used really actively is related to Silver Emma. Can you share the sort of Silver Emma story and the two ways we can talk to ourselves about regret? Sure. So regret is the engine that powers regret is something called counterfactual thinking that our brains are incredible. We can imagine we can imagine events that run counter to the actual facts. This, this is one reason why little kids can't experience regret because their brains haven't developed that sophistication. So there are two kinds of counterfactuals, what are called upward counterfactuals and downward counterfactuals. Upward counterfactuals are you imagine how things could have been better. If only I had married Fred, I'd be happy now. Downward counterfactuals are how things could have been worse. I regret marrying Bob, but at least I have these two great kids. So here's what we know. Upward counterfactuals make us feel worse, but help us do better. Downward counterfactuals don't help us do better, but they make us feel better. And that's okay sometimes. And we see a robust example of this in some remarkable research over 30 years on Olympic medals. And when you look at the medal podium and you show people who don't know what's going on, photographs of the Olympians on this medal stand, what you will find is that the happiest looking person is the person who won the gold medal, not surprisingly. However, the second happiest person is invariably the bronze medalist, not the person who finished second, the person who finished third is happier than the person who finished second. That is the person in second beat the person who's finished third, but is looking significantly less happy in many circumstances. Why? Because each of them is doing a counterfactual. The Silver medalist is doing an upward counterfactual. If only I had counted my strokes better or reached for the wall faster, I'd have won a gold medal at the Olympics. The silver medalist is saying, downward counterfactual. At least I didn't finish fourth, unlike that schmo who's not getting any kind of a medal. And so, and the, so bron- silver the bronze, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, the bronze medalist. The bronze. Yeah. The bron- yeah, at least I got a bronze medal rather than the schmo who finished fourth. And so Silver Emma is a bicyclist, that was her nickname, who, fin- who finished second in a number of, of races, including the Olympic road race in the Rio Olympics of 1996. And there's a photograph in the book that shows the, the three medalists. And, and Emma is not looking nearly as happy as the, the bronze medalist who, you know, and the difference, I mean, it's sports. So the difference in the actual performance among these three incredible athletes was fractions of sec- seconds. So they all were great and they all are Olympic medalists and they're all extraordinary athletes. And yet at this moment, when you're getting an Olympic medal, one is not feeling that great. And I, I'm going to connect this to entrepreneurship. I want to mention something here because I think it's really important that as entrepreneurs, we're me, you know, we're often taught go, go, go do, you know, progress is better than perfect. It's Mm. very much an at least mentality and I'll do it better next time, next time, next time. And I'm questioning that now. I recall I was listening to that story and I stopped in my tracks because I had just recorded something with a very fancy, very, you know, impressive person. It was a sales piece for my company and it was definitely a silver medal might even been fourth, you know, or fifth. It, it was not my best and it was not the best that I could do. It hard to get that opportunity again. And I felt down about it. And I had been listening to your book at the same time. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to at least this. I'm going to, if only this. 
And this is going to be something I would regret. Like the shadow of the future came in, right? right? I was like, okay, you know, like what would happen? And I figured out, I was like, all right, how will I, if only this, I've got this impressive person who might not want to give me another two hours of their time. I've got, (laughs) what am I going to do here? And I did, I, if only did, and I got this massive up-leveling. So I want you to know that for listeners, this is really critical stuff to what are you doing and saying to yourself? How are you talking to yourself? Are you if onlying? Are you saying, if only I would have done this extra stuff? And how could you use that? I've been using it minute to minute. Have you seen that? Oh, Dan, I know we're short on time, but have you seen people sort of saying, I'm not even going to wait for regret. I'm now coaching myself in real time with this. Well, I mean, you can you can do things to anticipate your regret and avoid them if you anticipate the right regrets, which are often regrets about boldness. You know, here's the thing. Downward counterfactuals, at least in something, is not always a bad idea. Like sometimes you want to feel better, but it doesn't help you do better. And here's the thing. You hit, you hit the exact puzzle. These if onlys, regret, they help us do better. They help us do better. They also make us feel worse. They also make us feel worse. So they make us feel worse and they help us do better. All right. Now, everybody wants to do better, but nobody wants to feel worse. But here's the thing. That's not the deal that's on the table. Regret helps us do better because it momentarily makes us feel worse. And so the real question is, what do you do when you're hit with that stab of negative feeling? You can either say, it doesn't matter, no regrets, blah, 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 blah. You can, you can be debilitated about this, or you can say, wait a sec, this is telling me something. What is it telling me? What is it teaching me? It's clarifying what I value and instructing me on how to do better. And when you take it for that, you have the kind of progress that you're talking about in your own experience. Let me offer just one other insight from the book that might be useful to your listeners. And you, you mentioned it very briefly, Jill, or you alluded to it, Jill, is that One of the things that you do see in the architecture of regret are two different kinds of regret. There are regrets of inaction, regrets of what, what, uh, regrets of action, what I did, and regrets of inaction, what I didn't do. And what you see in my data, some of the data that I have, but also in the academic research is that there's a big age effect. When we're young, we have about equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction, equal numbers of regrets about what we did and what we didn't do. But as we age, and not even that much, in our 30s and 40s and certainly 50s and 60s and 70s, the inaction regrets take over. I'm in my 50s. People my age, on average, have two to one, if not three to one, inaction regrets over action regrets. What haunts us over time is what we didn't do. And I think this this helps explain what's propelling some of these slightly older entrepreneurs who look at their lives and say, wait a second, I'm not here forever. It's not, I don't have an infinite amount of time. When am I going to step up? And to use your point about anticipating the regret, I don't want to look back on my life at age 80 or 85 and wonder what might've been. I want to shoot my shot now, whether it works or not is actually less important than I actually step up and do something today. That has been my experience as well. We're coming to the very end. I will say this, if I get my earplug, We're coming to the very end, and I will say, listeners, I do believe that you will regret putting off reading Dan's book or listening (laughs) to Dan's book on regret. I grew immediately. It was applicable. There's understanding of of how you can respond to it and self-compassion and how to balance it and get just the right amount to use it as a force for good in your life. So I want to say thank you, Dan. The final question is, 
if you could invite anyone from history to dinner and have a good long chat. Any uh, do I, one person or more anyone than one person? From, oh, you can have more than one. I always have oh, more than uh, one too. Well, that way you can share. You can order more dishes and share stuff. Totally. I would say I would I would invite Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha. Muhammad. And, uh, Muhammad, the 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 yeah, the, like the leading the leading figures of three major religions who were all real human beings. So Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha, only because I think that they would be astonished at things that they did thousands of years ago, actually still are in people's lives today. And so I'd like to talk to them about that. Truly incredible answer. I loved that. Dan, is there any last words? Where can people find me? I mean, I'm, I'm going to give all the links to get your stuff. You can go to my website, danpink.com. I got, at least for now, an email newsletter, um, all kinds of free resources on that website too. So D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a big deal for me. I love your work. Jill, thank you so much for the great questions, for the enthusiasm for crowd control, and I'll be eager to hear the final version of this interview. Awesome. Me too. All right. That wraps up another episode of Thinking Vitamins. I hope you got some empowering insights. If you did, please follow, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite platform. If you have feedback, a favorite thinking vitamin idea or question about the podcast, I'd love it if you sent me an email at podcast at boom-u.com. That's B-O-O-M dash letter U dot com. This episode was produced on Vancouver Island in Canada. Our guest today was the legendary thought leader, Daniel Pink. This is your host, Jill McCabe, encouraging you to think about what you're thinking about. And remember, science has shown our world is a reflection of our inner realities, which means that our collective future depends on your success.